Welcome to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. I'm Tom Keen. Daily, we bring you insight from the best in economics, finance, investment, and international relations. Find Bloomberg Surveillance on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Bloomberg.com, and of course, on the Bloomberg. Stephen Stanley, you're going to push aggressively against this with Amherst Pierpont. Uh, Morgan Stanley with the global sell in equities. Mike Wilson has been cautious on equities as well. Ellen Zetner has been below you on GDP. But you just flat out in a Claridian way push against this. You think, if anything, we could get neutrality out of Chairman Paul today. Yeah, I, I think, I mean, I, I haven't, I, I thought all along that they were not going to ease in July, and I still feel that way. Um, and I think it's time, you know, the Fed has been, in my view, has been very coy, uh, particularly the leadership and kind of letting things play out and hoping that the data would kind of push the market away from the aggressive easing expectations, perhaps. And we've gotten some movement, but uh, I think with three weeks to go to the meeting, uh, if, if they are thinking yeah, they might not move, they're going to need to tell us that John, soon. this brilliantly sets up the polarity that's out there. We've got Steve Stanley on the edge of solid, maybe a diminished GDP, but not. And then what Morgan Stanley is saying is jaw-dropping. The chairman of the Fed's uncomfortable with the outlook. He's communicated that to us, Stephen. I just wonder whether the outlook and the risks around it have diminished somewhat sufficiently enough over the last couple of weeks to say we don't need a rate cut at the end of this month. Is that your view? That's my view. I mean, I think the, the number one risk, obviously, is the trade situation. And um, we were just coming off of the Mexico thing at the, at the last Fed meeting, and we were still waiting for the G20. And while there was certainly no uh, final solution uh, to the U.S.-China trade talks at the G20, I think, um, you know, we, we, we got probably the best we could hope for. And I think since then, you've also seen some improvement in the data. Obviously, after a week May payroll number, we got a better number in June. Um, it seems to me that the Q2 GDP expectations are probably, if anything, a little better now than they were uh, in the middle of June. Um, the inflation numbers still a little below 2%, but the, the latest readings on core inflation uh, have been a little less soft than the numbers that we got early in the year. So at the margin, it seems to me that the risks are still there, but they're not quite as acute as they were uh, the last time the Fed met. Being somewhat familiar with Morgan Stanley's thinking around the Federal Reserve, I think there's a belief that because there is limited ammunition, there is an incentive there to get ahead of a potential downturn because if you wait for it to materialize, you don't have the ammunition to address it. You need to do less with more. You need to be preemptive. So I'm just wondering whether that's a justification to go early and go big, even if the economic data at the moment, the realized data may not warrant it. Your thoughts on that argument, Stephen? Yeah, I think if you, if you believe that a downturn or even a significant slowing is is likely, uh, then I think that's exactly the Fed playbook: is to go hard, go early. Um, and, and I think there's there's no question that the market has kind of latched onto that way of thinking. Uh, but at the same time, I guess what I would you know look at is that the, the Fed has acknowledged that their base case is still. Pretty, pretty positive at this point. They see downside risks, but until, unless or until they are more confident that those risks are likely to materialize, I just don't see them acting. Then it's data dependency. What is the data that matters that gets them to some form of decision, whether it's a Morgan Stanley Barclays 50 beeps or it's something more optimistic like where Steve Stanley is? I think most importantly at this point is growth. Um, because really, the, GDP the, growth. The, Interesting. The, yeah, Interesting. the downside risks are around the growth uh, implications of trade uncertainty, I think. So Q2 GDP, I've always thought, was going to be a really important number 
Which and then within that, is it the consumption dynamic or is it really business dynamic off of the president's trade war? Right. Well, the, the, the risk, the downside risks at this point are mainly related to the business sector. But if the consumer holds up, then we could probably afford to see a pause in business investment, which is, I think, what we're seeing. So it's really, you know, I think that's why in some ways the, the labor report last Friday was pretty important because it, it tells us that the underpinnings for the consumer should remain solid. Stephen, here's a question for you. If at the end of this month we don't get an interest rate cut, but it's priced by the market at the moment, if they hold, will that be the equivalent of a hike for financial conditions? Well, there's there's definitely going to have to be an adjustment, whether it occurs the day of the meeting or, or between now and then. I think, you know, certainly some of it could could occur today. One thing that, that I'm encouraged by was, so last Friday we had a pretty significant adjustment in rates and in Fed expectations. And the stock market was down, but it really wasn't down that much. So I think what the Fed is really concerned with is a, a big drop in stock prices. And, uh, you know, at least so far, it doesn't feel like that's necessarily in the cards. God, you sound Trumpy. And Steve Stanley with us on the stock market and Chairman uh, Powell. Thank you, Stephen. Chief Investment Strategist, uh, Amherst Pierpont. We are thrilled to have in our studio to talk about the future of New York Wall Street. Robert Albertson of Sandler O'Neill, his decks of investment strategy for Sandler O'Neill are legendary. But as John Farrow, as you mentioned yesterday, was a legendary day as Sandler O'Neill taken out by Piper Jaffray. And Mr. Dunn had an emotional moment hearkening back to the courage of him and you and others to move forward off of September 11th. What did you do yesterday? Look, I wasn't there. Uh, I came after September 11th, and, and I can tell you this is a firm with probably the deepest culture I've ever come across. Um, I always feel like an outsider, frankly. It is a very solid place. We didn't get taken out. I, I think the better way to say this is we recognize change has to come, too. And it's tough, tougher for us, a private firm, than most and very successful at what we do, but it made a lot of sense. You've got to, broad, you've got to do two things. You've got to broaden your base uh, of products and services and contacts, and then you've got to make the most of them with very strong push on productivity, not cutting costs, but, yeah. but, but really finding ways to cross-sell. And this, Piper's the best, it really is the best match for those two things, and that's what you're going to see on Wall Street in general. Uh, shrinkage of tr- reliance on trading, uh, shrinkage on reliance on balance sheet, uh, you've already seen it, and, and then deeper and deeper into the advisory uh, with more balance. Robert, there's this great story that came out of yesterday that Jimmy went across to the local Brooks Brothers store <laughs> and just bought all the duck ties, all the ties mm. with ducks that he could get his hands on. Talk to me about the significance of doing just that yesterday. Well, his longtime friend and head of banking um, uh, who perished, uh, that was one of his favorite things, and that was in honor of him. Uh, and very touching, and it's an inside thing you'd need to know. But it tells you how, although we can be as a firm as hard-nosed as anyone else on Wall Street uh, when it comes to competing and doing the right thing, there's a really soft spot uh, based on that sad blemish that happened uh, 20 years ago. Let us talk about the news. You and I have seen, we showed film of Lehman Brothers earlier in Bear Stearns, and you and I talked about Continental Illinois. How grave is the situation at Deutsche Bank? 
I can't tell uh, because I no longer, uh, as an analyst, follow it anymore. I'm not an analyst. Um, I, I think it's been there for a long time. And I, my simple view is uh, when they brought on Bankers Trust, it was a big shift in their type of product. Um, they stayed with it too long simply because you look at the trend lines. I'm going to send you those log charts. You go back 10, 15 years ago, trading was the only thing you should ever consider doing. It was the strongest, most predictable, volatile, but most predictable revenue source. That has changed uh, dramatically, and, and everyone has to adjust. I think that's a bigger part of their adjustment process than most. Um, and I, I would guess that they're going to survive and pull it off because they're finally facing uh, the big elephant in the room, so to speak. And some good news for people affiliated with Deutsche Bank that the fixed income traders this morning were told that they will be keeping their jobs. This market has changed, Robert, and I would love your insight on it. It is crazy what I'm seeing in European markets right now. Emerging market Europe, so the likes of Poland, the Eastern European nations, the rally that we've seen in a fixed income market, Poland's 2029 note is very close to dropping below zero on the yield. Just think about that. We could have negative yields in Poland on 10-year paper. This is an economy, doing Eastern, they're, they're doing like 4% GDP as Just a blend unreal, of Eastern unreal, absolutely unreal. Century bonds, some of the big century bonds, some of the well-known issuers of them, they're returning almost 20% through 2019. What do you make of this massive clamoring for fixed income, income, wherever you can get it, and the idea that the bond market is providing capital returns north of what the equity market is offering you. you you got to go back and look at how long we've been in abnormal interest rates, whether you want to call them abnormal or not, whatever. But um, there's been an obsession. Um, it is an addiction, and therefore nobody wants to change it, and everyone's frightened, and even the president thinks 25 basis points will make or break his economy. It's silly. Um, <clears throat> that's not going to change, whether you're an industrialized or an emerging market, uh, for, for a while, that's for sure. Uh, number two, the emerging market side of the world, and let's call Poland and those uh, more like that, not that they're not industrialized, uh, are much more focused on infrastructure growth, good things that we all remember 20 to 50 years ago, uh, and it's going to work. So they're in a different world entirely, um, completely decoupled. Put those all into a bunch of folks called Europe, EU, oh my gosh. Uh, you really are setting it up. Mm -hmm. And the third thing, uh, you, you break this thing potentially by all this nationalism, which hopefully dies down, but it's a global trend, well, obviously. I've got eight more questions, but we don't have the time. Robert Albertson, thank you so much with Sandler O'Neill. Congratulations to all of Sandler O'Neill on their announcement yesterday with uh, <laughs> Piper Jeffrey. Pipe, Piper Sandler is what we're going to call it? Piper Sandler Companies. Very good. You have to get new business cards? Very good. Coming soon. Robert Elbert. Robert, thank, thank you. you so much. Greatly appreciate it. Henrietta Trust joins us, one of our most popular uh, guests, Director of Economic Policy at Research. Uh, and, and thrilled that she could be with us. She's really got a, with Veda, and she's got a real visceral knowledge here. Henrietta, I got, is a great Washington watcher. How much does Washington roll up in the summer? I mean, before air conditioning, it was a total roll up. But like, is Washington like half asleep in July or is it like more bustling than it used to be? 
<laughs> Morning, guys. Um, July tends to be pretty busy. They do start work after the sun goes down in a lot of cases. A lot of this stuff happens at night. Uh, but August is when everybody is definitely gone. So yeah. mark your calendars for July 25th, I want to say. Yeah. It's the last day of session, and then they'll be out. That's what John and I are doing. We're booking for July we 25th. Take August we take August We're <laughs> so We're going to be on a holiday, as Francine. That's very fresh. Okay, we need to get a serious update. We haven't done this in a while, folks, with all the distractions. Let's do it now. Henrietta, seriously, the position now of the United States of America against the threat of Huawei. How has it changed in the last number of days? It has not changed uh, meaningfully at all. I, uh, I think in the, in the readout of the G20, there were two options. We could either assume that President Trump had reached a deal with President Xi and he was no longer serious about extracting systemic reform out of China. He wasn't secu- concerned about the national security threat posed by companies like Huawei and others in the high-tech space. Or the readout of the G20 was overly optimistic, too rosy, and in fact nothing had substantially changed. In the last 10 days, we've got a lot of evidence for the second scenario and not very much for the first. So Secretary Ross speaking at an export control restrictions conference, which is basically the future of the U.S.-China trade war, he said, look, we're going to be relaxing a little bit of the restrictions, mostly steered towards U.S. sales of semiconductor chips and things that go into their tangible components that Huawei produces, but nothing that is associated with the future of Huawei. So their 5G networks, uh, their ongoing efforts to expand into further uh, visual and audio uh, surveillance, the cybersecurity component, all that is still very much front and center. Um, And I think there's actually a lot more to come, not just focused on Huawei, but on any high-tech sector uh, that has business with with China. So biotech, nanobiology, synthetic biology, um, uh, AI, anything in the future of yeah. the communications is what we're about to roll out with these export control restrictions. Henrietta, it's becoming really complex. I caught up with the National Economic Council Director Larry Kudlow on Friday. Various members of the administration for quite a while said the Huawei issue was a separate issue from the trade discussion. And Henrietta, Larry Kudlow said on Friday, that it was the same story now, part of the same negotiation. What do you think yeah. of that? I think it's very much something we saw with the ZTE ban uh, this time last year, early, even earlier than this last year. Um, the U.S.-China negotiations are so wide-ranging, and the export control piece, the future of high-tech, is what it's really all about. You know, We talk about tariffs a lot, um, but they're the window dressing to the underlying trade war, which is not just limited to, um, you know, you don't buy enough soybeans from us, but about how you see China forcing tech transfer, forcing IP theft, and to have a conversation where Huawei, one of the main instigators and one of the areas of concern, you know, some other folks at the conference yesterday were saying, look, we need to be on offense against China. We need to be proactive oh. unless they're going to continue to steal our IP and advance in a global fashion that, in a way that leaves our high-tech industry behind. Henrietta, so we just seem just- to be blurring the lines between the job of the Commerce Secretary, the job of the Secretary of State, the job of the Treasury Secretary. It seems to be becoming one job. 
absolutely. I'm so glad you mentioned that. So there's the executive order, if you read it closely, that doesn't even mention Huawei, but addresses the communications technology and systems going into the future and has all these specific dates for, as you mentioned, the Department of Homeland Security to weigh in yeah. uh, later this month. All these agencies, CFIUS, the SEC, the FCC, um, you know, anybody with an acronym, okay. they're involved in this. I want to ask, a, can I ask a first order condition? I'm the dumbest member of Congress and I'm asking Henrietta Trez an important question. What has Huawei actually done, and I'm using this word as an amateur, criminal? I mean, is it, are we worried about the future or have they actually done something bad now? Well, it depends on who you talk to. They they have 68 separate entities, so they do a lot of things. So it's not like there's just one. Um, probably most concerning would be um, the fact that they provide surveillance that allows China to have its human rights abuses perpetuated, um, specifically with Muslim minorities in the nation. So okay, so human rights angle. So it's a human rights angle on Western China, which is completely tangible. Is that all you have? No, certainly not. And then you have um, the fact that Huawei is trying to build out its uh, future of wireless, and that is something that the United States and our defense agencies have a big problem with. If Huawei is selling its handsets and its um, components not just to Iran, uh, but to other nations, and then they are incorporating their uh, potentially um, sort of cyber security threat components to the general public, that becomes a major national Okay, but, but what I'm hearing there, John, you jump in, but what I'm hearing there, folks, is it's a future worry. It's not like a present tense worry. Over it's a Huawei. persistent worry, yeah. a persistent worry, not just for the U.S. government, for others as well. Yeah. Henrietta, we're creeping up to 2020. The campaigning's already begun, really started a while ago. And I'm just wondering, if this is a story that's just going to drag on now with no real conclusion going into the back end of next year? That is absolutely my thesis. And frankly, it has been since we passed the tax bill in December of 2017. This administration will not be passing any other major yeah. legislation. They obviously can't get the USMCA through. Yeah. Um, we're going to have a fight over the debt ceiling and the budget in the fall. That's going to eat up the last half of this year. The president won't get an infrastructure bill. He won't get a health care reform bill. What can he do on his own that doesn't require Congress? Two things. Immigration and trade. They go hand in hand, and I think the president is better served yeah. to perpetuate the trade war going into 2020 than he is to resolve it now. Are the people of Capitol Hill engaged in the census citizenship question? Uh, you know, I, I think a lot of folks are. It's definitely not my wheelhouse, but right. it is an area where if you are um, focused on gerrymandering, if you are focused on the election and who gets to vote, uh, which I think a lot of folks are from President, former President sure. Obama and Eric Holder, um, on down to the rank and file members, um, and particularly the newer members of Congress and the House uh, and the Democratic Caucus and folks like Elizabeth Warren. This is a major issue. It's about who gets to vote. And I think if you have time to spend on that, you definitely do. Not every member is super involved. It has become harshly partisan, right. but it is obviously a very important question. Yeah, this is great. Henrietta Trust, thank you for the briefing on Huawei. She is with Veda uh, Partners. There was a company in the 20s, very quiet, on Fifth Avenue in New York, 
it was the Allen brothers and particularly Herbert Allen Sr. And then there was a now Herbert Allen Jr. And what they have done is quietly affect transactions in communication in media. You can go back four years to Time Warner, Charter Communications, Verizon, Centene, HealthNet, and on and on. Our Paul Sweeney knows this cold, and he is with Allen and Company at Sun Valley. Paul, instead of the, the media confab today, what is accomplished by Allen here? Is, is it a Davos for media, or is that off the mark? No, that's absolutely right on the mark, Tom. I think uh, just this morning, uh, sitting out here by the hotel where they're uh, having the first sessions, John Malone, Barry Diller, uh, Tim Armstrong, uh, just uh, you know, a whole host of media, telecom, and uh, technology executives uh, have just passed by us. And uh, it's really a place, like as Barry Diller said, he comes here to be stimulated, to learn new ideas, new technology. I mean, people speak uh, and all that, right? Yeah, p- people speak. And, um, and uh, you know, these, I think a lot of these executives come here to just, to just learn, uh, to think about new technologies, where their businesses may be going. Um, and then, of course, right. um, you know, to really talk about deals. Should we be doing business with you? Should we be merging with you? Should we be acquiring yeah. you? Uh, so a lot of that takes place uh, at this conference. I, I mean, Lisa, if I go out there, do I need to wear my Woolrich men's flannel overshirt, John Rich and Brothers? You need to wear that tomorrow. The big ru- the with, buffalo check. With, with your bow tie, you the need big, to wear it tomorrow. Yeah, I can wear it with a bow tie. I will be tweeting that the, out. The big so red and black check. Yeah, 100%. Yeah, I cannot okay. wait. It's very Brooklyn. <laughs> It's very, it's very Tom Keen. I love it. Listen to Mumford and Sons. Please. I love Mumford and Sons. All right. I'm revealing too much about myself. Paul Sweeney, I do want to talk a little bit about the urgency. Have you ever heard a higher degree of urgency among media executives yeah, than question. now? Yeah, it's a great question because, you know, what these media executives are dealing with really over the last couple of years that they've never had to deal with um, is the likes of these big technology companies, whether it's Google or Facebook or Amazon or Apple, really taking a very hard look at the media communications and entertainment businesses. And so, you know, they've been encroaching, those technology companies have been encroaching upon, you know, the businesses that have historically been Time Warner, you know, Viacom, CBS. uh, And these executives here really need to figure out how they react, how they adapt. Uh, Do they partner? Do they acquire? Do they sell? Many of the media companies like Time Warner, like 21st Century Fox, you know, in fact, over the last couple of years, had decided to sell their businesses right. uh, in, instead of trying to go head to head. So they're winners and they're losers here. I'm looking right now at Netflix bonds and they're up the most. Uh, they're, they're at the highest levels on record because Netflix is a decided winner. Is it becoming clear who the losers may be, who in the media landscape may not exist five years from now? Um, well, I'm going to utter Tom Keene's favorite word as it relates to M&A, and that is scale. Um, you know, a lot of the smaller companies out there, whether it's a Lionsgate or uh, an MGM or even a Sony Studios, you know, one of the main studios in Hollywood, um, they're all thinking about their businesses and they're saying, we're just not big enough. And when we think about it relative to a Google or a Facebook or Amazon, we're just not big enough. And I think the big, big deal here this year is CBS and Viacom. People are, you know, really taking a look at what Sherry Redstone right. wants to do with those two companies that her uh, family and her company control, what's going to happen there. At the very least, investors here believe that those two companies 
need to get together, need to merge. Uh, then the question becomes, what does the merged uh, company do? So it's all about well, scale. If you don't have it, people are concerned. What have they learned in the last 12 months, particularly from the AT&T follies? I mean, what a debt buildup. I mean, are these guys talking about, you know, are, are they having serious discussions about being over-debted? Or is that okay? Debt, 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 go, go, go. Yeah, go, go, go is fine for the media sector right now. Um, you know, so the bond market, uh, the bank credit market really is supportive of the media uh, communications technology sectors. So uh, there's plenty of capital available to these companies and particularly at these low historic rates that we're at right now. So there's no real concern right now for debt. But of course, if you were to run into a recession and advertising were to take a serious blow, then companies that have a lot of well, debt, like an AT&T, like a Comcast, they might have some What issues. are you seeing in advertising? I mean, Hulu's cutting back, NBC's talked about cutbacks as well. I mean, do the advertising people show up? And are they wearing the men's flannel overshirt, John Rich Brothers? <laughs> Tom's already ordered it, by White the way. check. I like the white check. I think the bow tie would go great What color bow tie do you think? I think it's got to be more of a grizzly brown. You know, it's got to be. How many grizzly brown bow ties do you have? I have three of those. <laughs> <laughs> I got I to say, Paul, my, my, my big question right now is definitely about the tech companies and, you know, how significant their involvement will be. In other words, when we talk about the media space, will the media space be big tech in five years and all of the other uh, all of the other standalone companies will just get rolled in with them? Yeah, you know, we haven't really seen it to date. We've seen a lot of the tech companies kind of dip their toe, uh, you know, make um, some investments in programming. Um, you know, whether it's, uh, you know, Google with, with YouTube and so on and so forth or Facebook, maybe, you know, putting some football games uh, on uh, Facebook. But we haven't seen them really jump into the deep end of the pool and maybe acquire a big media company and say, you know, we really want to be in the content business. We haven't seen that. And quite frankly, this conference here at Allen & Company in Sun Valley, they've been expecting that uh, for really the last four or five, six years, and they just haven't seen it yet. Uh, so it'll be interesting to see whether these tech companies really want to go yeah. uh, and, and allocate a lot of capital to the uh, content side. Paul Sweeney, thank you so much. Reporting from Allen & Company on his media world. We look forward to his return. There's an auspicious time to speak to David Rubenstein of the Carlisle Group. David, I want to speak about your wonderful conversation uh, on unicorns with the leadership of Uber. Of course, it's peer-to-peer. But at this moment, David, I'm honored to ask you about the resiliency of American capitalism with a print of 3,000 on the SPX. I mean, that long-term trend of American capitalism has been extraordinary, hasn't it? It's hard to understand completely because typically we have recessions every seven years. We're now 10 years into a growth cycle, and there doesn't seem to be any evidence that we're going to go into any recession anytime in the foreseeable future. So the economy is really defying gravity and history, but that's good for American investors. We have had a number of conversations that corporate officers have come to a halt because of the president, because of trade war, because of manufacturing uncertainty. Do you see that at Carlisle? No, I would say that uh, corporate uh, investment has slowed a little bit. But I would say generally, uh, we see pretty good growth in the economy, not 3 and 4%, but 2% or so. 
And I would say that uh, I do expect there will be a trade agreement before the end of the year in China. And I expect the USMCA will in time get confirmed by the Congress. And I expect that uh, uh, we'll have some rate cuts. SPX 3004 right now. We're with David Rubenstein, of course, a peer-to-peer conversation. And this one is interesting. You went out and found a unicorn, David. Yes, um, Uber. Uh, the CEO of Uber is the person I was interviewing, and um, he's an incredible person. He's an immigrant from Iran, uh, came to work uh, in the United States at Bazaard, and then ultimately uh, came to work for Barry Diller, and then ultimately was was running a, uh, a company for Barry that Barry Diller's company owns, and um, was recruited away to run Uber after uh, the previous CEO um, stepped down. Uh, while people say the IPO was not that successful in some respects, I thought it was pretty successful. While there was some uh, uncertainty about the pricing in the first day or so, and it was below the IPO price, it's back pretty much to where it was yeah. at the IPO. But this is the most important point. This company is probably has the second highest market value of any company in the United States that went public. Uh, so in other words, uh, the only company that has a higher market cap after it went public that I'm aware of is Facebook. Google wasn't this high. Microsoft wasn't this high. Amazon wasn't this high. So people can say that it wasn't all as, as successful as people wanted, that they wanted a hundred higher valuation, $120 billion or whatever it was. But still, when you think about this company, it's not that old. And to have this kind of valuation so soon after it was started and relatively so soon after the IPO, I think it's still amazing. It's a, it's a fascinating conversation. Let's listen to a clip uh, of Daro uh, Khazrashahi. He is the chief executive of Uber speaking with David Rubenstein in the episode three of the new season of the David Rubenstein show, Peer to Peer Conversations. What's the biggest challenge you currently see uh, the company facing? I think the biggest challenge that, that we have is a, is a common challenge that you see with some of the large technology companies out there, which is there is an increasing regulatory burden uh, that is coming on some of the tech company, some of it deserved. Let's suppose I had some extra money and I wanted to buy into a company like yours. Mm-hmm. Why should I buy your I think company? you have some extra money, don't you? Never have enough. There's no doubt that uh, there's a sentiment in Washington that there should be more regulation of some of these companies, and some of the CEOs of these companies have said there should be more regulation. Congress moves slowly. I wouldn't expect any epic legislation in this area for quite some time. It's easier to get things done in the regulatory area if you do them administratively. So I expect more likely there will be enforcement or uh, examinations by agencies uh, of the operations of these tech companies more than legislation. Legislation could take many years. Um, And when Microsoft was investigated, for example, years ago, it was an antitrust action that was taken against it. And I expect that uh, there's probably likely to be something in the future uh, in terms of administrative action against these tech companies more than legislation. You know, one thing that I find interesting is that uh, a lot of these companies, including Uber, relied heavily on private markets uh, for a very long time before going public. And a yes. lot of people are concerned uh, that basically that, that, the, that the potential dynamism of these companies is sort of over once they get to IPO stage. What's your view on that? 
Well, it used to be that people needed capital to grow their companies. Now there's so much capital that you can stay private for a long time, as Facebook did and as Uber did. But in the end, most of these tech companies, with very few exceptions, want to go public to provide greater liquidity for the investors uh, and, and the employees. Uh, I do think that you have to recognize people aren't as interested in going public. There were In 1997, there were 7,200 companies that were publicly traded in the United States. Now there's about half that. So there's clearly a bias against taking your company public or not taking it public uh, as rapidly as you would in the old days. David, one final question. Uh, Allen & Company, of course, has their soiree in Idaho, and Paul Sweeney's made clear everything is about scale. How does David Rubenstein define scale? Well, today you want a, a company that is global. Um, today, building a nice company in the United States or in China or in Europe doesn't mean as much unless it can scale around the world. And scale means you've got the ability to, uh, to invest large sums of money. So scale means multi-billion dollar uh, <clears throat> capabilities rather than multi-million dollar capabilities in this day yeah. and age. David, thank you so much. Greatly, greatly appreciate it. A fascinating conversation uh, tonight. Peer-to-peer conversations. David Rubenstein uh, with uh, the Uber team. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. Subscribe and listen to interviews on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, or whichever podcast platform you prefer. I'm on Twitter at Tom Keen. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide on Bloomberg Radio.